No, I was just going to ask if you like Halloween. Are you, no, you... I usually wind up hiding from trick-or-treaters. It just always comes oh, wow. at a bad time. I have That's... too much stuff going on. I don't need to stop what I'm doing to deal with candy. I like it in theory. If it was on a weekend and I didn't have other things to do. But it's like, you know, do you have time for this? You do I this? mean, I don't have time. I make time because uh, I'm not a neighborhood Scrooge. But uh, <laughs> I was more asking if you enjoyed to celebrate it like yourself when you were younger or. I'll tell you, you know. I lost my retainer once on Halloween <laughs> and it soured me forever on the whole deal. Yeah. <laughs> I got in a lot of trouble. Like the retainer was expensive. And I, yeah. I was eating candy in the rain and I dropped it. I found it like eight months later in the mud. <laughs> wow, I can't believe you found, yeah, it's pretty cool that you found it. I, that was always a really messed up part of childhood, like getting in trouble because I broke my glasses. Like I, I never broke my glasses on purpose, but my parents would get mad at me if I. <laughs> anyway, one thing that I'm noticing more this year than like other years is there's a lot of I just maybe I don't know. Maybe it's just like a coincidence, but I feel like there's a lot of people who feel the need to uh, go around saying that Halloween is their favorite holiday. Hmm. And uh, like, for whatever reason, it bugs me. You know, it's just like, oh, I'm so quirky. Halloween is my favorite holiday. And uh, like, I get it. You know, like Halloween's fine. It's better than people saying St. Patty's Day is their favorite holiday. Yeah, no, you got to watch out for those people. That's a red flag. <laughs> Total red flag. <laughs> red flag holidays. Valentine's Day. That's pretty messed up. Maybe the worst would be M- Mother's Day, <laughs> unless you're a mother. I guess. Yeah. Mother. Yeah. If, you're, if you're not a mother, and your favorite holiday that is, is a Mother's super Day. Super red flag. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> ah, it's just it's just my favorite holiday. <laughs> What's wrong with that? I love moms. I love my mom. I love all moms. <laughs> Just really into moms. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Zero Sum Empire, the podcast that's taking a critical census of the roughly 620 mostly anonymous American billionaires. Yeah, welcome back. I'm Joe. I'm Chad. We don't always introduce ourselves, but sometimes we do. Here we are. You know, we're only 18 episodes in. We're still kind of like getting used to uh, the whole flow. <laughs> the number of, of billionaires in America keeps fluctuating. We're, we're, we're settling on 620 for now. Yeah, we have decided to use uh, Forbes magazine's uh, definitive 2019 list of American billionaires. Uh, and, and they come up with... Uh, 620. Uh, so, so we're going with 620. We're going with 620. That's where we're at. Yeah. All right. Um, each week we spend a little bit of time talking about billionaires in the news. So let's go ahead and do that right now. All right. Billionaires in the news. So this week there's just one story because it's a, it's a big story involving our old friend, uh, Michael Milken. He is, he's back in the news, making more trouble. We talk about Michael Milken more than we talk about most people. I know. Yeah. Uh, uh, he comes up a lot. I mean, like uh, someday, you know, we're going to have whenever we hit the right billionaire in our random selector, we're going to have the opportunity to do this. But like he is at the nexus of the the origin story of a lot of different billionaires. Uh, a lot of people made a lot of money uh, being involved with Michael Milken in the 80s. And you know, uh, what, you know what we should think about doing? We should we should form our own Milken Institute. It just studies <laughs> what a yeah. horrible person he is. <laughs> this time, uh, it looks like Steve Mnuchin uh, gave Milken some preferential treatment in a new tax break surrounding something called opportunity zones. And unless you're a rich person uh, looking for ways to defer uh, capital gains taxes, then you probably don't know what an opportunity zone is. I don't know what it is, so I'm happy to learn. Great. Um, okay, I'll, I'll read you the IRS definition first, which isn't really all that illuminating. But according to the IRS, okay. an opportunity zone is an economically distressed community where new investments under certain conditions may be eligible for preferential tax treatment. Localities qualify as opportunity zones if they've been nominated for that designation by the state 
And that nomination has been certified by the Secretary of the U.S. Treasury via his delegation of authority to the IRS. Uh, so here's how it works in, in plain English. Let's say I'm a rich person and I sell a house or real estate or something uh, that is an asset, anything, right? Uh, that uh, and I sell it for a profit. The profit that I make is called a capital gain. Uh, I understand that. Yep. Okay. I'm with that. So yep. if I take that money and I invest it in an opportunity zone, I reinvest it into an opportunity zone by buying real estate in that zone, for instance, then I don't have to pay any taxes on that capital gain. Okay. Um, and so I, so I, I can initially defer those taxes. Uh, so I don't have to pay them for, you know, uh, uh, some amount of time. I'm not sure how long. Uh, however, if I hold on to the new investment for 10 years or more, uh, then I never have to pay the tax. Right? I see. So, so, so it's a way of encouraging people to invest in specific areas and also letting rich people off the hook for capital gains tax. That's exactly right. So basically, instead of selling something and then putting my profits in a bank or the stock market or something where I would have to pay tax on those profits, I just invest them in an opportunity zone and escape my tax burden. And that and, and like, OK, if you're as, as Joe just said, if you're enticing people to invest in economically distressed areas, that might be a good thing because you could make the argument that they might help rebuild infrastructure or even, you know, sort of act as a counterforce to gentrification or something. I don't I don't know. But like it's not clear that they're working at all. Like I said they're very new and there's not a lot of data on it yet, but there was an article in CNN Business that I looked at that argued uh, uh that Los Angeles is kind of a model for how these things are going to work. Mm -hmm. So, cuz they adopted uh they were early adopters uh, in the opportunity zones game. Uh so in Los Angeles, most of the investment is going to the Arts District Opportunity Zone, uh, which uh, the article points out has been hailed as L.A.'s trendiest neighborhood. Uh, and absolutely nothing is going to Compton, for instance. Uh, that is also oh, so this is just like they're just putting money where fancy art galleries already are. That is correct, right? So, like, oh, great. Okay. they will never work, right? If if you have places designated as opportunity zones that are already doing well financially, then <laughs> Rodeo and, Drive, <laughs> right? They like obviously an investor is going to put their money there because it's a surer bet, right? So you have to be super strict about how you designate <laughs> the zones. I like the name though; it makes more sense. Look at all the opportunities here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, like, there are. There's a lot of opportunities, right? Um, and so, you know, and that's why I wanted to redo the IRS definition at the at the beginning because it's important that states nominate the or they designate the zones initially, and then it goes through a process of certification at the federal level. And so, like, mm -hmm. you have to be it's not just like making sure that the treasury department's doing its job. It's also that like the state has to be very scrupulous in how they designate opportunity zones and the federal government has to be very scrupulous. And, and like, obviously that's, that's not happening. And, and, mm -hmm. um, it, you know, it turns out that, uh, uh, there's a lot of opportunity for, uh, abusing the system. Uh, by just giving rich people a way to sell an asset, make a bunch of money, and then reinvest in another asset without having to pay any capital gains tax. So the recent scandal is that even that wasn't enough. Right? So, like Michael Milken wanted to get this like place in the middle of the Nevada desert where he wants to build a sort of technology hub designated as an opportunity zone. And so Mnuchin bent the rules or ignored the rules and how the Treasury Department goes about designating a zone. Lobbyists should not be drawing the boundaries of the the, the opportunity zones, right? Absolutely not. Uh, but but they are, and they have also uh, successfully lobbied the Trump administration to amend the rules such that if you already owned property in an opportunity zone, you can still take advantage of the tax break. Like if you own something in an opportunity zone before it was designated an opportunity zone, you can still take the tax break for some reason, right? Like there's, it's obviously not drawing new investment to the area because the person already made that investment, already it's owns just the thing. It's a, just a pure break. Just a tax break. And not only that, like if you, and I think that there's like some statute of limitations on that, but if you like 
have owned the property in an opportunity zone for a really long time. It, it appears that there's some other provision whereby you can like lease the land that you own to yourself and then take advantage of the tax breaks. Like, I mean, it's just, wow. it's a scam. It's a, it's, yeah. it's turning out that it is just a, a big scam. But the point, the, the only point that I wanted to make, and, and this is the, the end, the only point I wanted to make is like outside of this scandal involving like Michael Milken and Steve Mnuchin secretly meeting and working out a deal to, you know, um, this lucrative deal to designate an opportunity zone in the middle of the Nevada desert. Like it's, it's, it's ripe for abuse everywhere, like all over the place, right? Like mm-hmm. um, that, that, and everybody who's looking at it is finding that all of the money that is being invested in opportunity zones is being invested into already wealthy places and there's no money developing uh, financially distressed areas. So it sounds it's a scam. to me like, like par for the course, but horrible yeah. and an interesting right. variation. <laughs> exactly. Right. It's just another so-called loophole, but like that implies that it was an accident, right? Like that it's just another thing like the carried interest loophole that allows people to just not pay taxes. Like you just don't have to now because uh, we have this special designation for just you because you're rich. Joe, uh, I, I completely forget, as usual, who you're going to talk about. Uh, who is it? Yeah, we haven't really talked much about it before the show. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about Brian Roberts, CEO of Comcast. Oh, yeah. Comcast. So That company remember, that everyone loves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we'll talk more about that. Uh, I, I, I discussed Cox Communications a few weeks ago. Oh, yeah. Comcast is a much bigger player in the same market. This is another heir to a fortune and a family business. Brian's father, Ralph Roberts, co-founded the company mm-hmm. when he bought the cable system in Tupelo, Mississippi back in 1963. It was sort of an odd deal because he was a Philadelphia guy, but someone approached him about the opportunity. He was sort of a businessman moving between different ventures and he decided to get involved in this market and it became it became the biggest cable company ever. The company went public back in 1972. Okay. So Brian himself seems sort of predictably uninteresting. Uh, I'm going to talk more about Comcast than I will about him, but a few sort of generic biographical details. Brian went to Wharton, started working for Comcast after he graduated. <laughs> He he became CEO of the company in 1990. At this point, he's actually legally impossible to fire. His position (laughs) as CEO is secured by the company's articles of incorporation. So that would state, quote, the CEO shall be Mr. Brian L. Roberts. Wow. So it's a publicly traded company, but there's no power to remove the CEO. That's uh, for so long as Mr. Brian L. Roberts shall be the CEO, (laughs) he shall also be the president of the corporation. (laughs) Wow. So that's it. That's the deal. Uh, a, A bit about the Roberts family Robert and his wife Eileen have three kids. Uh, their daughter Sarah went to Brown where she met her future husband Chester. On a squash team. They now live in New York, where she runs a boutique fitness center. Chester (laughs) works at Green Hill, an investment bank specializing in mergers and acquisitions. (laughs) So, you know, like sometimes I really want super rich people to surprise me, but they usually don't. The son, Tucker, is, it's actually a little different. He's a big time gamer. Oh, here we go. He grew up like a lot of kids (laughs) of his generation, uh, obsessed with Nintendo. Now he leads the esports divisions at Comcast. Yeah. So he's like, I thought you were going to say, well, yeah, that was less interesting than him, like being on the leaderboards of esports gamers. Like that. I didn't look deeply into his background. I didn't, I don't think he's like, uh, one of the best gamers in the world, but he he obviously has some gaming skills. Well, I don't. I actually don't know that that's true at all. I'm gonna t- just take that back. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah. What would be um, really funny is if he w- like 
was uh, very bad at video games. He just liked, <laughs> yeah. really liked watching other people play them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just, <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. a funny idea. Um, their third sibling, Amanda, keeps a lower profile. I didn't look very hard, but uh, casual searches didn't even really turn up anything about her. So whatever. Those are the three kids. That's the family. They vacation on Martha's Vineyard. They have two sloops. Do you know what a sloop is? Uh, yeah, I mean, more or less. It's a boat, right? Like, I know the Beach Boys song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a boat. It's a single mast sailboat. They've got a couple of them. Yeah. So it's like. Hey, just get one with two uh, masts. Why two single masts? Get one boat, two masts. You can afford it. <laughs> That's an interesting point, Chad. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I wanted to talk a little bit about the politics of the company. So they've they've become, uh, I guess, a little bit of a punching bag of the right because of Brian Roberts's relationship with Obama. Mm-hmm. He identifies as a Democrat and gives money to Democrats and was golfing buddies with Obama. And during the Obama administration, Roberts was was apparently a regular visitor to the White House. Um, you know, so the, the, the right media has a lot to say about that. At the same time, what's confusing to me is Brian also contributes to Republicans. Um, he <clears throat> gives more to, to Democrats than Republicans. But when you look at Comcast, the company, they donate heavily to both parties. And it's actually yeah. difficult for me to untangle who they're giving more money to over time. So, like, there's just a lot of different information out yeah. there that would take a lot more time for me to sort through. But, like, well, I think that the, to, I think that the answer ahead. is that, it, like, it doesn't really matter, right? Like, Comcast right. as a corporation yeah. doesn't have a politics. All they have is grease for the wheels, right? Like, and that, that's what they're doing. It's just crazy that that's the way that it works. You know, it's just like, that's how you, that's how you do this work. You just give them all money so that they talk to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So they're one of the biggest players in the, in the, in the lobbying business. They're giving, funneling more money into contributions and lobbying efforts than most companies. What are they trying to accomplish on any given day? I couldn't really tell you, but the general right. <laughs> trajectory is <laughs> quite clear. Um, they want to dominate communications in the United States. And they've been rather successful in doing that. So over the last two decades, they've been involved in a slew of acquisitions deals that you're probably familiar with already, Chad, right? I don't keep up with it as much as I should. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, uh, to some degree, right? Like as of, I don't know, 10 years ago, right? Like Comcast was not one of the big five or six multinationals that uh, uh, people would list whenever they said, oh, you know, five or six companies control all of the media that you consume. Uh, Comcast wasn't yeah. up there. Um, that it, it's r- relatively recently that they've like um, begun to, I guess, vertically integrate is, is what you said, yeah, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So so I'll, I'll, I'll pull out some of the hi- highlights. Notably, back in 2001, they acquired AT&T Broadband Services, securing their position as the dominant firm in the industry. At that point, that, that made them over twice as big as the next biggest uh, cable provider, which was at the time AO, AOL Time Warner. Between 2009 and 2013, they managed to acquire NBC Universal, right? And this is what you're referring to, yeah. Which makes them one of the most powerful media companies on, on the planet. So um, they that 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 acquisition happened in a couple of different parts and took years and took a lot of lobbying efforts to persuade uh, the policymakers that this was not a monopoly, which it is basically. But they were able to make a a case allowing regulators to let them go through uh, with the acquisition. During this time, this is a, a throwback to last episode, they were able to seduce legendary entertainment, Thomas Tull's company, oh, yeah. away from Time Warner into a five-year production and co-financing partnership. In 2004, they tried to buy Disney, 
but that didn't work out. It's sort of a funny, I, I don't know if you remember this. I, I, I didn't, but they just, they just offered Disney like out of nowhere. It seemed like, like a massive, like 50 billion plus dollar check. And the Disney board was like, what? Like, <laughs> what do you do? <laughs> like, Disney's not for sale. Like they didn't even like talk to Comcast. It was just this sort of like disaster. Didn't work. Maybe they're just throwing their weight around. I mean, they were trying to, but Disney is Disney. And, it, you know, they tried to acquire Time Warner in 2014, but people went ballistic. And in the face of like antitrust lawsuits, they withdrew the offer. And in her 2013 book, Captive Audience, Telecom Industry and Monopoly Power, Susan P. Crawford writes that, quote, Comcast is the communications equivalent of standard oil. Hmm. Comcast is at this point the largest internet service provider in the country, has more than 25 million subscribers, also offers phone service, mobile phone subscriptions, and home security. So Comcast is the largest internet service provider, but you can't subscribe to Comcast in many places across the country. Right. Do you know why that's the case? I don't know. Did it have something to do with the breakup of Bell uh, whenever they all made all the baby Bells and, and gave them hmm. sort of geographical zones and were like, okay, you're in this zone and you're in that zone? Did they... That may have something to do with the prehistory of it. I, I, I actually don't know. But just based on my sort of casual understanding of things. Today, like the major internet service providers, for the most part, try to stay out of each other's areas. Different internet service providers dominate different geographical areas. So they sort of just agreed to do an oligopoly, right? Like, uh, Kind of. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it allows them to, to maximize economies of scale. Mm -hmm. There's usually not more than two major providers in any one area. And in many places in the country, there's only one. Yeah. You you have to go with whoever's there, which creates some sort of obvious problems that we can talk about. But before we do that, I just want to point out that like for many years, US law required telephone companies to provide landline access to citizens. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you kind of know this, but phones were basically treated like water and electricity as like something that you need for your survival. And this has been, these laws are, are going out of effect um, in the last few years as people have stopped using landlines, as everybody's using their cell phones. But the idea was to keep people safe and connected and it was viewed as a basic need. The development of the internet in the United States has gone very, very differently. Communications policy in the United States has treated the internet as not a necessity, but just something that certain people can afford to have. Yeah. And it's not like things had to go down like this. Other developed countries have developed like watchdog groups to ensure cheaper, faster, more reliable internet access to a higher percentage of, 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 of citizens. So- and very, very much on. like, uh, and very much like healthcare, we have ended up with a far inferior system, right? Like that, uh, that uh, internet speeds, uh, absolutely elsewhere it's, it's, are it's, it's, generally it's, yes. higher than than ours are, right? So, like, not only is it's it more totally expensive, analogous to healthcare, yeah, it's it's both more expensive and worse. Right? Yeah, and I have <laughs> I have some I have some statistics that support this idea. So here's a little quiz. What country do you think has the cheapest broadband in the entire world? The cheapest? Um, Norway. Not a bad guess, but wrong. Is the fastest Croatia? It's some Eastern European country. Like. And now you're in the zone. All right. <laughs> the, the Ukraine. Oh, really? Huh. Average internet cost is five bucks a month. In what? <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Five bucks a month. So out of 195 countries, United States is ranked 119 <laughs> in terms of the cheapest access to internet. Wow. So while it's five bucks a month in the Ukraine, it's 67, between 67 and 68 bucks in the United States. Hmm. And this is, this is because the government has not stepped in and said, 
people have a right to internet access in the way that they have in so many other places. Right. With regards to download speeds, here's the the title of one article that I found. It's simply, U.S. internet speeds are, quote, among the worst in the developed world. We lag behind Luxembourg, Japan, Iceland, South Korea, Switzerland, Sweden, Netherlands, Denmark, Spain. So the, the, the point is that that is exactly the point that you were making about healthcare is that for whatever combination of, of, of bad policy reasons, we pay more and get less here in America than many other places. What if that would be a powerful argument for healthcare, right? Like, like if you could get people to sort of understand what's happening by analogy, be like, okay, I know that you think there's a bunch of things about healthcare that make it special, right? And and uh, and so, like you know, this argument that other people pay less and get more doesn't make sense to you because you have all of these but 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 kind of exceptions. That you, but like, look, it also applies to this other realm, right? Like, it also, yeah. Um, you know, I don't know. Yeah, no, that's a, that's an interesting rhetorical strategy. I mean, I think that like this should be something that's more on on the radar of more people. I mean, as of 2019, 10% of Americans don't use the internet. And obviously this skews uh, along socioeconomic lines. So three in 10 adults with less than a high school education didn't use the internet in 2019 Hmm. or up until this point. Blacks and Hispanics are more likely than whites to, to report that they don't use the internet. So, I mean, it's a, it's a social injustice. That, that needs attention. Why have we let this happen? Why have we let so many things happen? You know, people know that lobbyists run Washington, but when it comes to like these specific kinds of issues, I mean, I think it's fair to say that most of us actually don't know how or why companies are influencing policymakers for specific reasons. It's just too much to keep track of. And I think like beyond that, I mean, infrastructure policy especially is difficult for people to pay attention to. Yeah. You know? It's boring. Yeah, I thought I'd quote Paul Edwards from his book, Infrastructure and Modernity. The most salient characteristic of modern technology, he writes, is the degree to which most technology is not salient for most people most of the time. So he's getting to to the fact that like all of our interactions with modern technology are sort of receding into the invisible backdrops of our daily lives. Most of us aren't even really aware of the screens around us anymore. It's just sort of like part of the default condition of our lives. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to like service providers and cables laid laid beneath the dirt, these things are like many times more invisible and boring to think about. And at the same time, arguably have more of an impact on the the fabric of our society. So the the boringness just makes it very easy for the companies and their lobbyists and their their lawyers to move in when no one is looking and call all the shots as they see fit. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, is that just too basic? No, I mean that that makes sense, you know, like it is a very basic form of access that you need, right, to uh do most forms of work mm-hmm. to basically, you know, get in contact with anyone to find out information on anything right? <laughs> that, that the internet yeah. is, is uh, kind of necessary. It's just very right? difficult to survive without it. I mean, we can talk right. all day long about whether the invention of the internet was a good thing or the bad thing for the history of civilization. I have complicated feelings about it, but just in terms of like practical need to survive. Yeah. From the perspective of wanting humans to be able to survive and thrive in the world as it exists today, we need it, yeah. You know, and 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 it would be improving the conditions of human beings' lives if the internet was cheaper, faster, and available to everyone, as so many other countries have realized and implemented. So you know, we need to bust out the asset liquidation index. I'm thinking Brian Roberts is a six. A six, okay. Um, Maybe a five. Yeah, you know, I. Uh, there's not a lot of specific things that that he, that he has done. I just don't like the idea of communications dominance. Yeah, and that's basically been his whole life's work. Yeah, 
I guess so. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But like you, I guess the the way that you're sort of talking about it, it seems more like he is a cog in a very large machine, and he's an important cog. You know, he's a he's a central cog. He's a <laughs> he's a very aggressive cog. Oh, he is. I didn't yeah. <laughs> like. I didn't really. I mean, he's a he's well, his disposition isn't isn't aggressive, but he's been, you know, all of these acquisitions, everything that's been happening over the last couple of decades has been happening under his watch. Yeah, and he's has a vision for Comcast dominating. And I just don't think that that's necessary. And I think that it's harmful in a lot of ways. And, um, I don't know. What, what, what were you thinking? Yeah, I think I'm four. Yeah. Uh, no, no, no. He's got to be at least a five, you know, as the head of Comcast, uh, you know, just, just for customer service alone, right? <laughs> like, uh, he's got to be at least a five. Yeah, no, I think, I think, um, I can go with six. Let's do five. Okay. Yeah, let's do five. Brian gets a five. Who are you talking about today? Uh, I am talking about Haim Saban of Saban Entertainment. Uh, And if you've heard of him before, it's probably because of this. Remember that? Oh yeah. Oh, I, I I remember that. Yeah. I'm gonna shut it off. We, we got. Yeah. It. You get the point. How do you feel about just the song itself? Do you like it? I mean, it, I've got just so many deep associations with that song. It's sort of. I mean, really? I really like the song. Oh. Yeah. Well, don't you? Doesn't anyone who like grew up during this time? I guess so. I mean, it's like. Yeah, I think that I haven't heard it in a long time, and I don't think that I really remembered the guitar. I just remember the Go Go Power Rangers. Like that's what I remember. But like, right. I don't know. It sounds a lot like Iron Maiden to me. It's really good. Well, that's but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like like when this was a TV show and part of popular culture, and you would hear that song all the time. There were things going on in your life. <laughs> you know? and that's what yeah, i think yeah. of when i hear that song yeah uh, i don't need to go into that's the interesting it. but yeah, i mean I, I guess my main feeling about the power rangers is as much as they were like completely over the top and ridiculous and this sort of like ab- absurd pop culture phenomenon my experience in my particular like social matrix was that <laughs> i wasn't cool enough to understand why it was a thing you know, okay. it was just completely baffling to me. Yeah. I would look at it and hear that song. I was just like, I just do not understand why this exists. I mean, I didn't even know at the time that it was Japanese and that it had been remade and all of that kind of thing. Yeah. But um, I just, I had no framework. And so I kind of felt left out. Yeah. I Yeah. I mean, I think it, it sort of passed me by too. It, it, it wasn't, it's not like a major touchstone in my life, um, but it was for a lot of people. It was a huge huge property uh, that was owned by Haim Saban. He's the billionaire that I'm talking about today uh, and was the creator, kind of, as Joe already pointed out, of the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. It was an import from a Japanese show, part of the Super Sentai uh, cluster family of properties. He had been working in children's television for a really long time and has been associated with a lot of the biggest names of kids' television shows uh, that you know. Uh, you know, it, it, it was sort of a mid-career show for him. He had no real love for the Power Rangers. Uh, as one uh, article that I read noted, he once referred to the Power Rangers as uh, <laughs> and uh, forgive me, five retards in spandex uh, that paid for his mansion. Uh, so that's, that's what uh, he said? Yeah, yeah. In what year? <laughs> uh, this was, I don't know. This is in the 2000s. Um, wow. Yeah. Okay. I thought we could talk about some 80s animated series cartoon themes uh, because that's always, it's always fun to listen to them. And also uh, his partner, 
uh, Shuki Levy was he he currently holds the world's record for the most television themes uh, uh, created by by anyone, uh, and he was behind some of the most memorable uh, themes ever. Uh, Haim Saban uh, actually claims that he also helped com- co-composed uh, some of these themes with Shuki Levy. Uh, but uh, it, it's pretty clear that he didn't, especially because he doesn't really play an instrument or know anything about music. Uh, and so I'm going to start with just a couple of those. Uh, just, okay. uh, well, Joe, why don't you uh, just tell me when you recognize the theme? So this is, <laughs> this is one of the, this is one of the two that, uh, that Saban claims he was involved with. Okay, it seems like it's going to be embarrassing for me. But, but. Nah, you'll get this one. You have not gotten it yet. Just going to clock that for everybody. Oh, Inspector Gadget. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. It doesn't. It doesn't count if you say it after the song says the name of the show. Uh, I kind of so thought you, it was going to be that, but I was didn't have the confidence. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, probably the most memorable uh, cartoon theme song in the history of cartoons. Uh, but I Joe missed, remember that I didn't really watch cartoons. But anyway. Yeah, yeah. I mean that, and that's also the sort of subtext of of my reason for doing this is because it's very funny to me. Uh, to just kind of uh, put Joe's uh, <laughs> like infam- unfamiliarity with popular culture on display. Uh, it's one of my favorite things to do. Uh, okay. And so I'm going to play another one now. Uh, uh, this, is, uh, this is the other one that Saban claims that he was involved with in some way. Here we go. You're going to get this one quickly. Oh, you said it's Heathcliff? Is that what it is? Yeah, that yeah. <laughs> yeah I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have gotten that without, I mean, I actually, yeah. if you had asked me at the end of that previous jingle to take a wild guess, I would have said Inspector Gadget, but I wouldn't have gotten this Heathcliff without the Heathcliff. Thing. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> Heathcliff, uh, you know, it's kind of a weird property, right? Like it's very, it's an orange cat who's it's kind not of Garfield. S- sassy, right? Like as a sassy orange cat, it's yeah. Who's not Garfield. Like it's just a ripoff of Garfield. Um, I- I'm going to play some other ones now. Like, uh, so like that's, that's sort of the thing that Saban specialized in was, uh, was ripoffs. I went through, uh, Shuki Levy's, uh, uh, website today and he hosts every theme for a cartoon that he made on his website. And it's amazing uh, because you can listen to them without the v- stupid voiceovers that they always did for the actual cartoons. And you can listen to the songs as he composed them. Uh, and there are a few that I really enjoy. I don't know if we're <laughs> going to be able to play the guessing game, but just just kind of like appreciate how good this song is. See if you can guess it too. I can't remember when. when they, oh, they say it right at the beginning. <laughs> okay. Majestic. <laughs> I mean, Doesn't it make you feel good? Not really. <laughs> All right. That I doesn't mean, make you feel good. I don't know. You feel maybe. Um, maybe all does. right. Well, okay. If this one, if this one doesn't stir something inside of you, then uh, I, I don't know what's wrong with you. Uh, I don't, I think you're not going to guess this one. Um, uh, and I don't think that it says the name uh, in the song it, or it does, but not for a little bit. This is She-Ra, uh, Princess of Power. Uh, the, oh, the there's fe- no way I would have gotten that. Female counterpart to He-Man. This song, like yeah. imagine like, the, this is like a workout song. Like imagine just like running down the street and listening to this in your headphones. Okay. <laughs> you don't like this. It's like a fake anthem. 
Uh, I love it. <laughs> All right. Yeah. You don't like that one? You don't like no, that, that one? That would drive me crazy. I couldn't uh-huh. get through a run with that in my headphones. All right. Yeah. Well, I'm almost, I'm almost done. I want to play a couple more. This one is an extremely underappreciated cartoon that is just blatantly a ripoff of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles to the extent that they mention, they throw shade at Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in the theme song. Uh, uh, it's called Samurai Pizza Cats. Uh, have you ever heard of that one? Mm-hmm. I feel like maybe. Maybe. You're uh, not I punking mean, me. I actually don't think. No, 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 no. I'm not, I think no, it is actually no. a thing. <laughs> yeah, I feel yeah, like I've is. heard of Pizza Cats. Yeah. Uh, are, well, you might be thinking of Pizza Rat, which is a thing from like a year or two ago. Um, no, no. But like the, the like defining that. characteristic of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was that they loved pizza. Right. And, and right. I remember that. No and so like they just, yeah, they just created a cartoon called Samurai Pizza Cats that is exactly the same as Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh, however, it's a pretty good song. So here it is. Um, okay. Listen to the weird sound effects too. Maybe a little racist, but. Sounds like Fred Schneider from the B fifty twos. It's so so it's yeah. a it's a biting both Ghostbusters and Teenage Mutant. Yeah, I guess so. I guess unabashedly. You're right. Yeah. yeah. Who do you call? <laughs> Who are you gonna call when you need some pepperoni? <laughs> Last one here. Do you how do you okay? So you this, this is from the same period I think as Power Rangers. Uh, do you remember Digimon? No, no. Um, so. Digimon is a little bit weird. I think a lot of people think that it was a ripoff of Pokemon, uh, but it was not. Uh, very much like GoBots to the Transformers, Digimon preceded Pokemon. And this is one of the weirdest children's television themes that I've ever heard. And I swear the first time I heard this, for two years, it just cycled through my head. And and so I'm going to curse you with this, uh, with this song. It's just going to sort of rotate and revolve around in your brain for the next couple of years uh you'll never forget it so here we go okay all right Yeah. Okay. That I think I for kind of like you like that you one. Know, you like the yeah, industrial I would, I would vibe. Say, of, I would say like here's a challenge for us maybe as a as a team. We could make a rap song to that beat <laughs> <laughs> about about economic injustice, and it would yeah, go viral. A, I think that's a great <laughs> idea. I think that would work. One, there, there's probably no way it could fail. There's a hundred percent chance of success. I am um, in agreement. I think we should. If you a, if you can wake discussion. up tomorrow morning and not say Digimon, digital monsters, Digimon, <laughs> the chance. If you cannot, that, if you can, when was that made? I don't know, in the nineties sometime. But it was You're before, gonna say that in your dreams when you wake up in the morning, before you go to bed at night, that's just gonna play in your head for the rest of your life. Anyway, we talked about all these cartoons. People often wonder why all of a sudden in the in the like early 1980s, there are all of these cheaply animated, and they are all just very terribly animated and terribly written shows. Transformers, He-Man, GoBot, She-Ra, Thundercats, Heathcliff, G.I. Joe, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Care Bears, Rainbow Bright, Gem and the Holograms. Can I can I jump in? Yeah. What are, what's just coming like, to your mind? All, well, all of these things just trigger. They're all triggering devices for people who grew up during this time. Yeah. For me, 
I never was watching any of those shows, so I didn't have like really a frame of reference, but they were part of what was happening at school and in the world. Yeah. So when I was like three, I went to the shoe store and I made my parents buy me rainbow bright shoes. Hell yeah. <laughs> and that, that's uh, right, man. Fun of a lot, you know, you know, rainbow but, bright was the first, it was the first one. And actually, I, you know, I, it's crazy that you brought that up because I rain, the rainbow bright song is amazing. And I have a clip of it in the soundboard, but I wanted to play it as the outro to the, uh, to the segment because it's okay, so good. Okay, I look forward to listening to it. But uh, but Rainbow Bright, nineteen eighty three, I believe it was the first program length commercial, hmm. um, which is what all of those shows were. Uh, that was how the industry referred to them. And uh, besides the ones that I just named, there are dozens and dozens of less popular ones that, like we've sort of mostly lost uh to the memory hole of culture right um but saban entertainment was responsible for like for a good deal of them many of the like really really bad ones hmm. so why did we get them well as i said uh they were called program length commercials and prior to the 1980s there were limits on how much time a television station could spend advertising directly to children. So this, but this was like an intentional industry regulated situation. I, yeah. I'm just trying to understand. They were like, no, we that's right. Gonna... Okay. Yeah. Uh, like throughout the sixties and seventies, the FCC exercised control over children's programming uh, in terms of like what and how they could advertise to children. But in the early 1980s, uh, with an FCC staffed by the Reagan administration, uh, they just stopped. They were just like, we're, we're not going to regulate anymore. <laughs> um, and, uh, I, oh my God, I made a huge mistake. Rainbow Bright was not the first PLC. I got it confused with strawberry shortcake. Uh, I think rainbow, okay. rainbow Bright was in the like top five, right? It was strawberry shortcake, Care Bears, uh, Care Bears, Rainbow Bright. And uh, their their entire purpose uh, was to just sell ancillary products, namely toys. Uh, so the shows are really cheaply produced, and they are often given to bro to broadcasters for free. Uh, greeting card companies uh, and uh, and then toy companies uh, started supplying broadcasters with free programming, and the broadcasters obviously were happy to eat that up. Uh, and then the programs, in turn, functioned as commercials for kids uh, or uh, aimed at kids uh, for like the toys that the companies were selling. So in the, in this like early 80s experiment with Strawberry Shortcake, uh, Strawberry Shortcake realized a billion dollars in sales, uh, which remember, this is the early 1980s, right? So a billion goes uh, a longer way than it does today. And like everybody, every toy company, et cetera, every franchise immediately realized the opportunity. You know, Star Wars had kind of paved the way a little bit earlier, mm -hmm. but it was like maybe unclear what the business model was. Um, but in, in 1984, uh, the FCC decided to de entirely deregulate children's programming so that broadcasters, uh, they were, uh, quote, uh, no longer under any obligation to ascertain the needs of the community in programming choices. Uh, they had formerly been required to do so. Uh, and the FCC also formally did away with all restrictions on maxi maximum limits on advertising time per hour. So children's programming could be just advertisements. And that's what it was, right? Like the show was a commercial and then the commercials in between, like where it broke, was also a commercial. <laughs> it's, it's amazing to me to hear all this be because I sort of know this. And I guess now it's part of the show that everybody knows that like I didn't have a lot of freedom to consume medium when I was young, but I'm now so grateful for for my parents yeah. who must have known this. And I didn't yep. understand. To me, it was yeah, just man. insane. They were just like the insane parents. You Your know? parents, like they they threw you out of the way of a speeding train. They yeah. uh, they helped Thanks. you dodge a bullet in a big time God, way. I'm grateful. I mean, that's what I want to like. That's that's sort of the point of this section is the psychological capture of children that happened in the 1980s, and, and that includes me, right? Like that that I was that this was this is me, right? Like I'm talking about myself. <laughs> 
So um, uh, from 1983 to 1987, the number of program length commercials jumped from 13 to over 70 and revenue from sales of related products tripled to $65 billion. Now, 70 shows doesn't sound like a lot, but remember, there were like five channels back then, right? Like, the, it was <laughs> yeah. just no, you know, like... So it was basically everything. Everything <laughs> that was for children was just yeah. commercials, like, yeah. uh, you know, uh, because of the Reagan administration. That's uh, really, really, really interesting to me. So thanks for sharing. Yeah. So, so, you know, they even, they upped the ante. The FCC also declined to regulate profit sharing schemes between toy companies and broadcasters. For instance, uh, let me quote uh, real quick from, uh, and this is a, an article that it describes the arrangement between broadcasters and the toy company that owned Thundercats. So, quote, if a station aired the cartoon and reached, for example, 4% of U.S. homes, the station would receive 2% of national profits from the toy line. The FCC felt that the arrangement was, quote, an innovative technique, unquote, which did not contravene broadcasters' duty to serve the public interest. Right, so... so. <laughs> Toy companies. The FCC has failed so many times. It is very bad, and uh, yeah, and should uh, absolutely be publicly uh, run. People who work there should not be appointed by various administrations or whatever. It's really messed up. Uh, one one quote that I found that was really funny. Even Rupert Murdoch called the rise of program length commercials "quote prostitution of the broadcaster function." What? Uh, yeah, that is so extreme. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, before you give any accolades to Rupert Murdoch, he's going to come up in about you know two minutes. He immediately jumped on board with this and made a bunch of money from it. So, <laughs> of course, he did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so this is the world in which uh, Haim Saban made his nut. He uh, his rise. And he to, was a, he was an innovator in all of this, and other people were sort of following suit. Yeah, yeah, he was a huge innovator in this. Um, during all this time, Haim Saban was not a billionaire. His rise to billionaire status came a little bit later, uh, but his initial windfall uh, was the result of neoliberal market deregulation uh, that made the way for corporate capitalism's primitive accumulation of children's minds. Um, I, I'm going to get into a brief aside here, and, and maybe it's a little bit weird, um, but I think that it's a really productive way, that, that this deregulation of children's programming offers us a really productive way to think about how capitalism works. Okay. I won't take too long with it, but like if you allow a little digression, Joe, uh, sure. uh, I think, yeah, I think yeah, it's yeah. important. Okay. So, okay. Go for it. Capitalism, by definition, must constantly find new markets to exploit because growth is its rule. Why? Because investments are made to realize future profits. If markets do not continue to grow, then investments in future profits don't arrive. Uh, if an economy stops growing, people stop investing and the whole thing dies. Right? This idea is captured in Marx's famous MCM formula. Money, M, is invested in the production of commodities, C, which are then sold and turned back into money, M. And on and on it goes. Typically, when people talk about primary or primitive accumulation, they're talking about it in terms of land. Right, the traditional story that Marx tells and that others tell is that in the transition from feudalism to capitalism, this colonial operation called enclosure took place, where the poor were kicked off their land, and private ownership by the wealthy was legitimated by the political class, and capitalists were left to accumulate capital off the backs of the now landless proletariat who had no choice but to sell their labor and their lives to their new bosses. Right? That's a kind of standard story. Mm -hmm. right. But we should realize that this process wasn't limited to that historical moment. And in fact, it never stops. And most importantly, it's, it's not limited to land. Um, and there's a people, there's a few people who like go into this idea. David Harvey extends the concept of primitive accumulation. Uh, he coins the phrase accumulation by dispossession, uh, to describe this ongoing process of privatizing. We've talked about this a number of times in the show, privatizing anything public, anything and everything that is public land, air, water services mm -hmm. or whatever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Massimo De DeAngelis uh, describes 
uh, what he calls the continuous character of primitive accumulation, uh, even more broadly, as any capitalist capture of a new element of the commons. Uh, he like he helps us like think about this as in a, in a in a much broader way uh, as uh, like any element of of human life that be, can be enclosed as a profit making center for the capitalist class uh, can be seen as a new site of primitive accumulation. And so, like you can see with children's entertainment, that like the child's time to enjoy, to learn, uh, to uh, like become an adult. Uh, is suddenly is a, is a form of primitive accumulation. Yeah, it's sudden in the eighties. It's suddenly and completely enclosed in a capitalist envelope. Children have to be productive now. Children must consume. Right? We uh, like like we're more familiar with like examples in, in our own lives in, in, in ways like where our our leisure time, our time outside the workplace, is completely given over. Right to to generating effective and material labor, like if you're you're watching movies or doing posts, right? Like you're you're generating value for someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, and we we're, we're actually doing that on the podcast, right? We absolutely yeah. are, right? Like this is one of the ironies of of doing a podcast is that you're creating free content for a for a platform that doesn't pay you that makes money off of your creation of that free content. There's a way to read what we're doing, right? It's like the primitive accumulation of conversation, right? Uh, like uh, uh, that's hmm. sort of might be what's happening. But think about what children were for capitalists until the 80s and maybe a little bit before, but but really accelerating in the 80s. They were non-laborers. They had been laborers, uh, but then child labor laws came into effect and they were no longer laborers, so they became useless to the capitalist class. So how do you extract value from them? How do you exa- extract value from children? Right? Like yeah. <laughs> you make all of the media that they consume a commercial for forcing their parents to buy products. Uh, it's just so insidious. Very yeah. bad, very bad. And uh, I, I mean, this is what like this is what's amazing. And this is like the point that I'm making, right? Like, is that the, the 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 kind of primitive accumulation that's happening around children's psychology in the '80s? This, like this, this thing, this is an ongoing process, right? Like, I, I started out by saying that that capitalism has to grow. It constantly has to move into new markets, right? It constantly has to find new land to enclose, so to speak, and Every time you think that that it's found its final enclosure, right? Like, like how much further can it go? That, that every time you think it's found its like a final form of collecting energy from the friction of human activity, it finds a new area that it moves into. Like, like oh, children, you know, uh, you can't possibly go any further than that uh oh oh wait oh you oh you found a way to generate profit from my emotions uh and oh i'm also my communications with friends and family right like my leisure time uh and like and and now like this is what's what's fascinating right like now we're at the point where uh, our dna uh are the image of our face uh, as targets for surveillance technologies, my movements through space and time as I'm holding my smartphone, my unconscious processes like serotonin and cortisol bursts from like my lizard brain are monetized for the capitalist class such that I can no longer in any real sense be said to own these things, right? I am no longer the master of that domain in the same way that the serf was booted off of their land uh, and the, the, the state said that the capitalist uh, uh, now owns that. It's private property. Uh, that is currently what is happening with my brainstem. Right. Like, like, and I don't I like I don't want to get like too, too ranty, but the ultimate irony of neoliberal ideology that does nothing but valorize and emphasize the autonomy and sovereignty of the individual in in its like in its outward politics that same formation is 
responsible for privatizing and closing and dismantling the actual personal sovereignty of human beings, right? Like that, that Mm -hmm. because of this constant force of primitive accumulation of our emotions, of our communication, of our leisure time, of all of these like zones of autonomy that we were, that we were formerly able to claim outside of uh, the labor situation, it has done more than any other force to dismantle the, the, uh, the, the very notion of an individual. The individual is now something that has been sort of parceled out and, uh, and fragmented to such a degree that, like, it, that, that it doesn't exist anymore. And Deleuze and Guattari made that point in like, the 1970s. However, the point that they didn't make, and this is the real kicker to the argument, is that the the deregulation of children's TV, that form of primitive accumulation, was simply a reflection of a deeper infrastructural change in the economic base. Why? Injection molded plastics. <laughs> Injection molded plastic production techniques became much cheaper and much faster at the end of the 1970s, moving into the early 1980s. This is the time when Coke switched to plastic bottles from glass. Uh, remember jelly shoes? Remember those things? Every fucking thing was plastic. So this is obviously also the same technology that allows for these action figurines and all of the merchandise yeah, that- I should have said that. that was right. being created by like um, Star Wars and these shows. But no, but it's interesting to think about yeah. like the success of Star Wars is in some ways <laughs> yeah, yeah. hinge to- That's right. Yeah. Uh, technologies. Yeah. I mean, uh, the the success of Star Wars, uh, one, it, it, okay, so would Star Wars have been have, uh, as successful as it was uh, without the toys? Injection molded uh, right, plastic. Right, without the injection molded plastic toys that it was able to sell. And, and the answer is probably not. One final stat. By 1985, 75% of grocery stores had switched entirely to plastic bags. All of everything became plastic all of a sudden. And it, it like, and this is the thing, Joe, is that it's not just injection molding technologies. It's also the sort of global economy of oil. It's like, it's a, to- it's this like huge, weird argument. Uh, and I, this I, is like the final major turn, if, depending on how you want to like break up the epics of capitalism. You know, this could be yeah. could be argued that this is the final turn that like really hurtles us into Fuck. late stage capitalism in the worst possible way. So, okay, so are we going to rate this guy? Yeah. Oh man, I do. I do not like him. Uh, uh, I've got an idea. Do you want me to rate him first based on what you've? Yeah. Me? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because you have a more impartial. I've been living with this guy for two weeks. You have a more impartial view just based on what I said. Give me your number. Seven. That is exactly what you know, I was thinking. You know, I think that like, you know, it's not exactly like he's not responsible for genocide, but like colonizing children's brains in and of itself is nightmarish and horrible. And so I think that seven seems appropriate. I I, I agree. I, I mean, that's that's sort of where I was at. Um, I mean, I, I think I'm perfectly comfortable with a seven score. You know, I could go as high as eight. Uh, he's certainly not a nine or a 10. You know, he just doesn't have the reach. He doesn't have the wealth to to get up into the Coke category. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, yeah, I'm good with seven. I like seven. All right. Yeah. Okay, seven. Okay, so now is the time in the show when we choose our billionaires for next episode. We are going to bust out our random billionaire generator roulette wheel. More of a selector than a generator. We're not like we're not generating billionaires. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thanks for the correction. Yeah. You know, you know how I love to be a pedant. <laughs> yeah. uh, okay, you want to spin that wheel and um... yeah, here we go. And the first one is uh, Gary Rollins. 
Uh, Gary Rollins Gary is Rollins. in pest control. Okay. Uh, that sounds pretty cool. Uh, he is the the boss of Orkin. Uh, Orkin pest Orkin. control. Yeah. Ah. Orkin man. Oh. Yeah. Not Terminex. No. 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 Orkin. Okay. All right. Yeah. And I don't even remember seeing an Orkin Man commercial, but for some reason that's in my head. I think that that's a thing. Like Orkin Man is like a, a thing from old ads or something. Okay. Anyway, spinning it again. Here we go. Interesting. Yeah. All okay, right. Go. Number two is Jerry Moyes. M O Y E S. Jerry Moyes is uh, founded Swift Transportation. Um, ah. And uh, yeah. Oh, it looks like he ran into a bit of an insider trading case uh, and trucking, I guess. Uh, hmm. Yeah. Trucking and insider trading. That seems pretty good. I kind of want yeah. the bug guy, though, the Orkin guy. All right. You can have him. I'll take Jerry Moyes. Okay. How would you say that? Moyes? M-O-Y-E-S? Yeah, I guess so, right? That sounds right. All right. Uh, great. Uh, thanks, everybody. We're going to leave you today with another uh, Shuki Levy hit, uh, Rainbow Bright uh, theme song, one of my favorites. <laughs> really do enjoy this song yeah it's a great song it's a really great song okay i think it's probably good right wait till they get to the chorus no one wants to listen to this shit <laughs> I, I do <laughs> i love this song